Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Daniel Waller, uh, a man who's been doing a lot of work on the so-called incantation bowls from the ancient or late ancient Sasanian realm. Daniel did most recently a postdoc at Oriel College in Oxford working on the bowls. The results of that research are going to be published online as a really useful sort of database of quotes from the Hebrew scriptures in the bowls and just continues to poke away at this fascinating body of evidence. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Schweb. Thank you very much for having me. So we have this corpus of ancient magical texts, in quotes, and it's a very interesting corpus, first of all, because it's on pottery, it's Jewish. It, there's a lot of that's interesting about it. Yeah, uh, so maybe I'll jump briefly into the what and then maybe a little bit of the, the where and the when just mm-hmm. to kind of ground, uh, ready ground us before we start digging into it. So like you said, it's this late antique practice, um, which basically consisted of taking a small clay bowl, which is a very cheap, durable and easily accessible writing surface and using ink to inscribe a, uh, a protective spell on, on the inside of this bowl. Um, and uh, these spells were written in different varieties of Aramaic, Jewish Babylonian Aramaic for the majority of them, but also in Mandaic and Syriac. And these bowls were, for the most part, designed to protect people and their homes from, from harmful demons, uh, from curses, and, and from other forms of harmful magic either by expelling uh, these, these various agents of harm or, or by binding them or, or pressing them or, or even trapping them within the bowl. And uh, within these texts, we, we find a great variety um, of, of different spell techniques, but very typically they appeal to, to God, um, to angels, uh, they threaten or they curse the demons, um, they quote scripture, they deploy binding legal techniques. And once they'd been inscribed, Um, These bowls were then turned upside down and they were typically uh, installed or or buried at various points in in people's homes. Um, So perhaps at the threshold to the home, in the courtyard, in various rooms of the home. Uh, In short, they're they're a way of using the power of the written word to kind of embed uh, an enduring, long-lasting form of protection within your own home. There's a very large number of, uh, of surviving bowls. Um, they seem to have been a very popular technology. I think the figure most often given is between 2,000 to 2,500 bowls known to scholars. Um, though I've actually heard larger estimates. Um, and this obviously doesn't count the bowls that are still to be excavated, that are still lying under the ground. And where do we find them? Well, in what's now modern day Iraq and parts of Western Iran and what was then Sasanian Babylonia. Most of these bowls uh, have been surfaced through illegal excavations. They appear on the, the antiquities market and, and in private collections. But um, the, the large majority of bowls that are excavated in controlled digs, they come from sites in, in central Iraq, from Nippur, for example, Babylon, uh, Borsippa, uh, Sippar. So uh, I think that sort of covers the, the what and the, yeah. uh, the where. The when uh, is, is sort of an, a slightly open uh, question. Some of the bowls do actually have dates. They do contain dates. And I think the earliest of those dates is the year 545 CE. And this ranges through to 585, um, uh, somewhere around there, 589 uh, CE. So we know for sure that they were used in the 6th and the 7th centuries. And we can, on that basis, assume that they were used at at an earlier date uh, as well in the 5th century, possibly even the 4th century. 
Yeah, so that's sort of a, a basic intro to what these are. Maybe I should say that they stem from this period in which rabbinic Judaism was being consolidated and, and out of which the, the Babylonian Talmud emerges. And this is obviously the nerve center of, of Jewish law and theology. Um, but all of our earliest manuscripts for this text are from the 12th century. And the, the bowls written in Jewish Babylonian Aramaic happen to be the only written documents that we have that come directly from late antique Mesopotamia that haven't undergone a process of editing. Uh, in short, they expand our evidence base for late antique Judaism in, in very significant ways. So you raise a really good point, which we haven't emphasized, but that this Sasanian realm, I mean, the, from the political point of view, it's Sasanian rather than Roman, but maybe from the Jewish point of view, it's just part of Jewry. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how much the Jews saw um, these empires and especially the fluctuating frontier between the Romans and the Sasanians as a, an important thing, aside from practical purposes. They probably didn't see themselves as, you know, citizens of an empire. But this is where the, the action is with rabbinic Judaism, this, this formation of the Talmuds and this formation of a new post-temple, emphatically post-temple form of the religion, right? Which is what we have to this day. And these bowls by dint of being written on pottery preserve the stuff from the time like from the time that these rabbis were alive and so the rabbis were presumably from the milieu that produced the incantation bowls this is a picture of their daily life which we might not know much about if it weren't for these uh, things surviving now as for the survival and the fact that we don't even have a, a real number of bowls Presumably part of that is because of the illegal excavation trade and the market and the fact that this stuff kind of doesn't filter out through scholarly channels. Usually it filters out through commercial channels to people who maybe don't want to have anyone ask any questions about their collection and stuff like this, right? Now, is that changing? Is the, is the corpus becoming more accessible? Um, as time goes definitely. on? Definitely. Um, there's a, a great deal of work, especially in recent decades, that's gone into preparing editions of the Baltics and, and publishing them. Yeah, I, I think initially um, the bowl suffered from scholarly prejudices, uh, perhaps call it that, um, uh, especially prevalent during the 19th century, the 20th century. They were often dismissed as these, these defective vernacular texts that, that kind of reflect uh, superstition or a, a sort of a debate based variety of, of the normative Judaism that they derive from or which they uh, sort of drag through the mud a little bit or something like this. But th this view has really changed, particularly in recent decades. And I think we're slowly starting to, to see on the basis of this recent work and uh, on, on, on this growing number of publications um, what it is that these bowls can teach us about the diversity of Jewish society in, in, in Sasanian Mesopotamia. Um, uh, about processes of rabbinization, for example, at, in that time period, and how people conceived of their relationships with angels and demons and God and, uh, you know, various, various aspects like, uh, like this. But yes, the, the situation is changing. Um, there's a, a wonderful series published by Brill called Magical, The Magical and Religious Literature of Late Antiquity, in which a, a large number of bowls from the Skoyan collection are being published. A number of bowls uh, uh, held in different museum collections are slowly being edited or, or re-edited and published. So we have now, I think, um, something like 460 Jewish Babylonian Aramaic bowls that have been published and approximately 150 Mandaic bowls that have been published and something like 50 Syriac bowls that, that have been published. And um, 
this this number will continue to grow. Now, the prejudice against this material, the, the, that it's kind of the muck of late antique Judaism, not the, the real stuff. Is this something that was promulgated through Jewish scholarship, non-Jewish scholarship, or a bit of both? Um, a bit of both, I suppose. Yeah, Jewish scholarship has naturally been keen to yeah d- dismiss these materials as, as not necessarily reflecting um, the rational aspects of Judaism. Um, and uh, we find these same views reflected in, in Christian scholarship, for example, on, on Christian texts and, and, and so yeah. on. Um, this is all, uh, yeah. It does not reflect who who we are. Let us let us say that's that's right. sort of the view that's put forth. Now, very quickly, Aramaic we we know on the podcast. This is a, the widely spoken Semitic language of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Near East. Syriac is a a dialect or another a, a closely related language, which we shall be encountering very soon when we look at the thriving and very vibrant late antique Christian culture of writing in Syriac, but we haven't looked at Mandaic at all. Can you just tell us what Mandaic is? Mandaic is basically a, a variety of Aramaic, and uh, it's the, the language spoken by a small minority community known as the Mandeans, a Gnostic community, basically, um, who were living alongside the Jews and, uh, you know, smaller Christian communities under the umbrella of the Sasanian Empire in this this particular region. So interesting to us because you just casually let slip that they're a Gnostic community and all the listeners who are specialists in Gnosticism will be either saying, aha, or what do you mean they're Gnostic, depending on their position. But this, what is interesting about this is it's a... a religion that survives until today. So those who, who think this is a genuinely Gnostic movement, and that just kind of depends on your definition, it does go back to antiquity, and it does still survive in the Near East. So today's old school Gnostics, the Mandeans. But is it safe to say that all the bowls that we find in all these languages are all Jewish? Or do we have some non-Jewish ones? Or do we have some kind of cases where we're not sure? It is generally pretty safe to say that the bowls written in Jewish Babylonian Aramaic using the Jewish square script were produced by members of the Jewish community and that the bowls written in Mandaic uh, using the Mandaic script were written by members of the Mandean community. And this this sort of general assumption is reinforced by the contents of the bowls. So I'll just focus on the Jewish Babylonian Aramaic bowls, for example, uh, which quote, for example, from the Hebrew Bible, which refer to rabbinic figures, which might even quote from the Mishnah occasionally, which show a a strong familiarity with Jewish literary traditions, with Jewish figures, uh, and so on. And the same uh, observation applies largely to the Mandaic bowls. Occasionally, we do find something uh, surprising. We find, for example, a bowl written in Jewish Babylonian Aramaic that makes reference to to Jesus. Um, And uh, yeah, this does raise some questions about what's going on here. Is this uh, a a nod maybe to the confessional background of the person who's commissioned the bowl, who's purchased the bowl from from the bowl writer? Um, We're not really sure because they're all sort of anonymous products and we're basically forced to rely solely on the contents of the bowls and to extrapolate from this ideas about the religious backgrounds of the the persons who wrote them cool let's come back to that intriguing jesus bowl but before we do that it might be good to get a bit more context on something you've worked on which is 
the demonology to be found in these bowls. And I'd say also, let's talk about the angelology, because, you know, we've looked at the Hechelot literature, and we've looked at a lot of Jewish apocalypses in this podcast, the Second Temple stuff, and stuff that has cultural signs of what we think of as being Second Temple, although it may be moving into later antiquity after the temple's been destroyed, but it still has the kind of Second Temple vibe about it, right? And elaborate angelologies feature very heavily, but there doesn't seem to be anything like a master angelology that all Jews accept. It's it's very fluid. There's local favorites. Every apocalypse has its own system of angels, and it all draws on the Book of Daniel and stuff like this, but it, the names change their arrangement, their hierarchies change, their relationship with God changes, all this kind of stuff. What does that look like in the in the bowls? Like how much of a coherent picture of the invisible worlds do we get and the flora and fauna to be found in the invisible worlds? It is a complete mess. In, in short, there's no systematic angelology or, or demonology that, that we can derive from these objects. Um, like you've hinted at, they they basically reflect. They, well, let me first say that you know they were produced by numerous people over several centuries um, across a you know a fairly large area, and they're naturally then going to reflect different beliefs, uh, different local beliefs, uh, even personal, idio- more idiosyncratic ideas about perhaps what a, a demon is, or, or perhaps what an angel is, or how they can be approached and uh, you know either brought on board or expelled or whatever the case may be. That said, they do offer this, the bowls do offer this wonderfully diverse picture of the fauna that, that basically composes the, the, the supernatural or the, the transmundane realm. So we really do uh, encounter hordes and hordes of demons, really, a, a real rogues gallery of demons. Um, so various classes uh, of demons are very frequently referred to uh, in very general terms. Uh, moving sort of down to the more specific, we uh, encounter demons that are known by name, for example. So um, various Liliths, for example, are named. So yeah, they're not just directed, for example, against Shadim, uh, against a class of demon known as the Yorur, for example, or maybe a jackal spirit. They're not just directed against Liliths and Lilin, but maybe against this specific Lilith who's named uh, and who is uh, bothering this particular family or is maybe responsible for the death of a child in, in this particular family or uh, a demon known as Burukta uh, who's causing the migraine uh, that's afflicting a specific woman. So um, we do have to be careful in approaching these texts. They are quite formulaic, often clearly reproduced from memory. But we can presume that there was some sort of diagnostic procedure that took place, presumably some sort of consultation between the person who wrote the bowl and the person who was suffering from whatever they were suffering from, uh, as the case may be, that the scribe, the person who wrote the bowl, for example, arrived at some sort of diagnosis of what particular demon was troubling this person and then proceeded on that basis to adjure it, uh, yeah, to to fix the problem, in short. So the picture you're painting is one where the the writer of the bowl... Let's just call this person the scribe, right? For lack of a more specific way of fixing things. The scribe is going to have at least some expertise in this particular religious realm, or or maybe can, has someone they can consult with. But you've alluded already to a medical context. So a lot of these bowls are for healing, which is something we've seen already in, in many different religious traditions that we've discussed in the podcast. The temple cult of Asclepius is the classic polytheist example. And the scribe, if you come in and say, I have a migraine, presumably, if the scribe is a good scribe, they're going to just 
be able to say, aha, it's that dude, that demon, you know, that he's the migraine one. Um, exactly. Done. No, no problem. I can definitely write that for you. Come back tomorrow. Tell us a little bit more about Lilith. I mean, she has a long history, doesn't she? She, she as a singular female figure, right? But she's obviously expanded beyond being a, a single female figure at this stage. But this very powerful figure of an evil female demon character or child-killing monster, right, is quite compelling and quite interesting. Where, what form, if you can generalize, does that tradition take in this culture that's producing these bowls? Various forms. So she might appear, for example, as a type of succubus or, or seductress. And uh, we do find various bowls directed against demons. Um, in this case, maybe a, a Lilith who's taking the shape of one spouse, for example. Um, and the implication, of course, is that uh, some sort of sexual congress is taking place here that really shouldn't be, be happening. Yeah, and she becomes a fusion, I suppose, uh, within the bowls, depending on maybe the context of various aggressive qualities and uh, various prior Mesopotamian figures. This would be the best way, I think, of trying to sum up how it is that she exists within the context of, of the bowls. The reference to prior Mesopotamian figures is a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you next, which is, where does this demon stuff come from, in your view? And uh, this this isn't a fully answerable question, I don't think, but we can maybe get some insights. But I think the first thing to say is that within the context of the bowls, the, the origins of these creatures are, you know, they're, they're not necessarily a, a, a pressing question. The pressing question is the fact that they're, you know, they're an immediate source of, of harm or, or, or they're yeah. precipitating some kind of domestic crisis. So... Yeah, this this question of, of origins is an intellectual question. It's not really something that's addressed per se in this context, which is very practical, very pragmatic. What are we going to do about these creatures? Yeah, these creatures within Sasanian Babylonia, at least, are very much just an ever-present reality. The rabbis say, for example, you know, that we have many thousands of them uh, on our left and on our, on our right. Um, yeah, they're like mountains on either side kind of thing. And the bowls really do confirm this picture, you know, of, of demons being everywhere. They basically just exist at the, the edge of the visible, tangible world, but they do consistently have an impact on human beings. However, that said, there are points in the bowls that do refer to earlier demonic etiologies familiar from Qumran, from Enoch, from the Book of Jubilees. And uh, these are not particularly expansive references, but they do show that, that the persons writing these bowls did have some familiarity with these particular demonic etiologies, whereby the demons stem from the, the rebellious angels and, and so on. Um, so we do find, for example, reference to Mount Hermon in, in, in the bowls, to, to the sons of light in the bowls, um, in some bowls, I should say. These are, these are passing, passing references, but this particular etiology is clearly known to some writers of some bowls. Yeah. So the, once again, that, that kind of what we think is probably a very powerful oral tradition, which, which first surfaces in textual form in the book, in one Enoch, first Enoch, is, is alive and well in this Jewish milieu, where there's the story of something going wrong with the angels and then bad angels, giant uh, monstery type figures being born, and they've been around ever since. As you say... Maybe they're not asking those questions, but the, the fact that they believe that the world is full of dangerous spirits that are surrounding us all the time, you wonder why they think that in the first place. You know what I mean? 
yes. Why do they think that? It just makes sense, uh, I, I think. As part of their worldview, you fall sick. That's proof then that, that a demon is bothering you. Your, 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 your child is dead and you don't know why. Um, this, this, again, is ample enough proof that a malevolent agent is, is at work uh, within your home. And balls, yeah, basically represent one kind of response to that particular reality. The reason I ask you about origins of demon belief is because it's something that's been bugging me for a while. And it's just something I've been wondering about because you say, well, it's natural for their worldview to th- think about, you know, demons when when diseases happen and so on and so forth. And um, yes, I agree. But how did that become natural? Because it wasn't always that way, seemingly. Although seemingly in the, the Near East, it kind of was that way. You have these these ancient plague demons, right? from, I think, going back as far as Sumeria, and we even have kind of frightening relief sculptures of them and stuff like this. Makes you think, maybe this is a, a Near Eastern thing. But anyway, I'm speculating beyond the evidence. I'm just trying to get my head around this this demon stuff that we're seeing more and more of in uh, late antiquity and where it might come from. So you get yourself a bowl. Do you think that the inverting of the bowl, because we find them inverted in their sort of sight, is that the sort of activation practice? as it were. So you go, you pick up your bowl from the scribe who's written for you. You take it home and he says, oh, and before, you know, what you want to do is turn it over and then leave it and then, you know, cover it up so no one messes with it. Uh, yes. In short, I think the, the turning over the bowl is a very important action. However, I should begin by saying that we're once again forced back on the text. We don't have any surviving magical manuals or magical recipe books, um, books of instructions that say, right, this is what you need to do. This is how it's done. So we don't know, for example, whether the person who wrote the bowl was visited by the person who commissioned or bought the bowl and then produced the bowl in some kind of a workshop, which was then collected and taken home by the, the bowl owner and then buried within their home. It might actually have been the case that uh, the the person who wrote the bowl visited the person in their home, produced the bowl there, and interred it them, themselves uh, within the home. But certainly, I think there's a very sympathetic um, connection to be drawn between this act of, for example, overturning the bowl and pressing it into the ground. And the bowls frequently use variations on this, this particular verb, kavash, to press. So just as the bowl, for example, is pressed into the ground, so might the, maybe the demon is pressed or trapped within the bowl. Just as a, a curse is overturned, for example, the curse that a, a neighbor might have put on you, just as that curse is overturned, um, I think there's some sort of sympathy there with the, the overturning of the bowl. So this very cheap, easily accessible surface does have some very suggestive qualities that are perhaps part of the reason that the bowl was chosen in the first place, but that I think were more likely probably came to form part of a, a cluster of ideas that uh, began to inhere around the bowls, um, so to speak. Um, right. Yeah, so the bowl then becomes a, a press, a, a trap, a, a kind of a mousetrap for, for demons, um, as opposed to just a cheap writing surface. Right, it has it has to be, right? Because as Gideon Bohack pointed out in our interview with him, it's not going to be as easy to write spiraling text on the inside of a curved surface as it is, even if, say, pottery is preferred for some reason because it lasts longer you could just get a flat piece of pottery and write on that much more easily so there, there must be some reason that bowls specifically are chosen and the trap the trappiness seems not provable but it seems like it kind of makes sense from a, a gut feeling point of view from a magical exactly. way of thinking like yeah you, you definitely exactly. want a bowl because it's going to be it, it kind of has this action precisely and 
in itself, it's it's a domestic object. I didn't say this at the beginning, but you know, these are just simple unglazed bowls, the kind of bowls that people would have used in the kitchen. Um, they are domestic objects that once inscribed or invested with this power of the, the written word, the authority of the scribe uh, who, who wrote it, uh, backed up by sort of the institution that, that he's uh, uh, in a sense a part of as a scribe. And invested, of course, with, you know, powerful names of God, with uh, the, the powerful names of demons. Some bowls even say that they've been witnessed, for example, by angels. All of this kind of goes into, yeah, the, the writing of the bowl. The reference to powerful names might be the thing that brings us back to this, this lone, as far as we know, bowl mentioning the name of Jesus. Now, from what I've seen, and you're the specialist, so I, I put this to you. One way of reading this is this guy's some kind of Jewish Christian right? Or this woman, the, the, the person who commissioned this bowl. Another way of reading it is these bowls are looking for all manner of powerful names. As you mentioned earlier, we've got angelic hierarchies up the wazoo, but they're not really standard. It's just ones that are going to work. Someone thinks they're going to work. And the name of Jesus in late antiquity, one of the things you see this already in the gospel accounts. And as when we get into late antique Christian magic, so-called, we're going to see a lot more of it. The name of Jesus just has a bit of a reputation for being able to cast out demons, right? So we might have a case of a Jewish scribe, not a Christian bone in his body, going, I'm going to throw in Jesus' name. Can you tell us about this bowl and tell us what you think might be going on here? I think you've actually offered a very good summary of the... the of the, the possible no, the, readings. The, the possible options when it comes to, to this particular text. I, I suppose as more bowls are published, we, we can become maybe slightly more confident about typologies, uh, sort of textual or socio-religious typologies. We can start to build these basically on the basis of, of the text with greater confidence. And uh, yeah, I think, as I said earlier, one of the things that we do begin to notice is that certain types of contents cluster in certain bowls. So maybe in the same bowl that we find a reference to a rabbinic figure, we'll also find a biblical quotation and maybe a, a quotation from the Mishnah or, 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 or something like this. Other bowls are very generic, sort of off-the-shelf type product, you know, po possibly available for a lesser sum of money and uh, just uh, just a general potrepeon, something that, that yeah, you, you, you would just own one, perhaps, without being confronted by a specific problem that necessitated uh, a specific bowl to address right. that, that problem. Um, so a case of like, I'm building my house. Have we remembered the drapes? Did we remember the sofa? Oh, the bowl. Go get the bowl. Precisely. Oh, yeah, I'll go get the bowl. Precisely. And you go down and say, uh, da, da, da. and presumably maybe the guy's even got bowls already written up and he just inserts your name or whatever. This kind of thing. Yeah, just just something that's ready to to go, basically. But on, on the tip of his tongue, at the forefront of his memory, he can produce a suitable, a suitable text. Yeah. Mm. So this stuff is really, really interesting. Um, you can see why, as very often when we look at materials that are discussed as magic, just introducing it as a magic, a collection of magic texts, already inclines you to think about it in certain ways. And then when you actually look at what's in there, religion seems a much better term. These bowls seem to me quite similar to those little, in some ways, to those little plaques that Jewish people nowadays put outside their door, stuck on the lintel of the door. Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what they're called. Mm -hmm, These mm -hmm. little Torah thingamabobs. What are those things called? Uh, mezuzot? Is, is yeah. this what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I think yeah. so. This is something like, if you're Jewish, you stick that on the door lintel of your mm -hmm. house. There's some similarity there, seemingly. Like, I mean, do we think everyone who had a house had one of these apotropaic bowls? It's probably impossible to say. 
It is impossible to say. I mean, some people had a great many bowls. There's a, a particular woman, uh, Madur, who possessed something like 40 bowls. So she was really a, a tycoon of the, uh, the the Babylonian bowl world, or a, a, at, at the very least, a, a very extreme hypochondriac. Um, right. Yeah. But yes, we do possess them in great numbers and across a variety of sites. So it seems like they, they were very popular. Um, um, like you said, you know, just something that a great many people would, would put on the, the shopping list for the new home kind of mm. thing. Yeah. So when we're re- assessing rabbinic Judaism, I guess we have to think about, and, and this is present in the texts of the um, Talmuds as well, but the fact that many things that we would discuss as religion and many things as we just would discuss as magic are there centrally. They're just simply central to the religion. So there's there's a kind of magical element to rabbinic Judaism from the get-go. And it's sort of, you can't get rid of it, even though some of these uh, scholars, as you, as you say, try to get rid of it. In the same way that, you know, the scholar Magoliot reconstructed the text of Sefer HaRazim, was very embarrassed about what he found in there and was kind of trying to say, well, this isn't the proper Judaism. This is uh, the dark underbelly that the rabbin were struggling against and trying to kind of counteract. But we as outsider scholars with no stake in the purity or otherwise of rabbinic Judaism just say, well, but this is Jewish stuff um, fundamentally. And it seems to me that a, a key difference here across the Abrahamic divide is that in Christianity, in very authoritative authors, not all, not uh, anything like unanimous, but in some very important authors like Augustine, you have an attempt at a typology of what magic is and an attempt to say, okay, it's completely forbidden. It's completely, it's evil. It's anti-Christian. It's the stuff that we don't do, right? Which is going to mean that all the people who then go on to do magic, if they're familiar with that kind of veto from on high are going to have to find a way to nuance it. They're going to say, okay, what we're doing isn't really magic or what we're doing is uh, legitimate because we're invoking Jesus. It's just like they do in the Bible, whatever. You have to have some kind of apologetic approach if you're going to be doing this stuff. Or you embrace the dark side and say, we are, yes, we are servants of the devil. Maybe that happens with some of the later medieval stuff that we'll see, or at least we're treading on dangerous territory here. That doesn't happen in Judaism as far as I can tell, at least not in the late antique period. It's simply this is Jewish stuff. This is stuff we do. Maybe not even this is Jewish stuff. This is just stuff to make your, to get rid of your migraine or, or, you know, a legitimate way, just the same way as we pray to God for all kinds of other stuff. We can also, you know, have special prayers and special practices that will help God cure our children of their Qatar and um, make sure demons don't come and mess with us and stuff like this. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think when it comes to the usage of the term magic within sort of Western scholarship, you know, over the past centuries and, you know, just within common usage, there's, there is often a pejorative aspect to, to the use of the term. Uh, it conjures up ideas, something illicit or something done in private, something that should be kept hidden in a sense. Um, but that is very much not the case with the bowls. And magic is, uh, yeah, is a, is a very deeply contested term, obviously, um, particularly in scholarship. I do think it, it retains a great deal of value as a, as a kind of heuristic tool. But uh, I would really like to, to emphasize that uh, in using the term magic about the bowls, I don't mean to imply that this was some sort of illicit practice or, or something to be kept in, in the shadows. But I, I do think it's a useful way of, of looking at the, the kinds of language that are used in the bowls or, or perhaps highlighting certain kinds of language that are used in the bowls. And this is really not the language of request. 
it's language that's very heavy on threat, on restriction, on compulsion, on expulsion. It's built around the idea of adjuration and the idea is basically to urge haste in relation to the, the supernatural or the, the transmundane addressee of, of this language. And uh, yes, this language is addressed to very clearly defined personal goals that is built around the manipulation or the, the instrumentalization of, of these, these powerful beings. A lot of this language does seem to imply some sort of ritual action. So I, I think this, the, these are sort of aspects of the bowls that the term magic is very useful for addressing or capturing or, or sort of bringing to, to the forefront. But as you point out, in these areas where, where it implies um, maybe something that's not done by a particular community, this is very much not the case. These bowls that we refer to using the term magic were clearly not on the, the list of prohibited uh, uh, items, you know. Mm. They very often refer to themselves, for example, using the term amulet, kamea. Um, and we find the, the rabbis, for example, you know, uh, referring to themselves producing the same kind of, not bowls per se, but amulets. But basically, in short, there's, there's no illicit aspect to, to this particular activity, unless, for example, you're using the material medium of the bowls to curse your neighbor, for example, right. um, or, or to engage in something more nefarious, that would presumably have been very deeply frowned upon. It's always an interesting one to try to think through magic as a heuristic. And you've done a beautiful job of just laying out the ways in which this stuff is can be fruitfully seen as magical in the ways it can't. And, and seemingly the, the thing is we have to get rid of the notion that magic has to be something that's practiced by scary witcher witches or lone practitioners in a, a magical room somewhere and something that's just part and parcel of mainstream culture used for specific ends. It's not part and parcel of everyday culture necessarily, but when you have a problem, when you need something done, you, you need to get this magic stuff rolling. And it, it's neither illicit nor illegal. And indeed, it's it, the opposite of those things. It's, uh, you know, praiseworthy in a way because it shows your reliance on God, your your uh, engagement with the angels, your belief that God is the one to go to for help, God or his many servants, the ones to go to for help when you run into trouble. So in, in that sense, it would be seen as pious even. Exactly, exactly. The great bowl scholar Shaul Shaked, I think, has quite often in some of his publications referred to to the bowls as, as a, a kind of an act of piety. Right. Um, they, yeah, and this is again a very fruitful way of, I think, talking about talking about these texts. There's no one bracket, one umbrella term that's going to be able to capture kind of the the diversity of of materials and approaches to the the transmundane realm that that we do encounter in the bowls. And um, as you sort of mentioned there, um, these are not necessarily the products of, of individuals on the margins of society, of persons that, that we might uh, sort of conceive of as magicians, persons who are yeah, working in the shadows. No, uh, it, it's increasingly clear that, that a lot of these products were produced by very well-trained scribes, um, you know, persons who would have been at the, the center of, of their society, you know, producing various legal documents, writing letters for people, um, and at the same time uh, engaging in this particular practice on behalf of people as well. Such individuals might have had some sort of association with the rabbinic academies uh, as well, uh, which might work to explain the quantity of references to rabbinic figures, rabbinic materials in certain bowls as well. 
that's a hotly debated issue, isn't it, at the moment? Like, how rabbinic were these guys? And were they rabbis, maybe? Or were there some of them rabbis? Or were they just scribes and then they knew rabbis? Or what's going on? Exactly, exactly. And once again, there's no, there's absolutely no easy answer to that question. Uh, We just rely once more, we fall back once more on, on the texts and extrapolate as best we can. Well, Doctor, you've done a great job of extrapolating as as best we can. Thank you so much for this expose and uh, discussion of the nitty-gritty of our evidence base and kind of what's in there and uh, stay esoteric. Thank you. Thank you for having me on.